Amen. Thank you, Megan. How unwavering our hope. Amen. I'm thankful to feel the unwaveringness, is that a word, of our hope through your singing. Thank you, church, for singing to me and to each other in, uh, in our worship to the Lord. Aren't you thankful for our worship team? Yeah. I'm so thankful for them. If you see one of them today after the service, just thank them for being here at 8.30 this morning uh, to practice and serve you in that way. Uh, it's a real joy. I'll be right back. Not, not me in the sermon right now. I did not, sorry. I, I just realized that could have sounded like someone else needs to come up here. But have you ever heard that phrase from someone? Have you ever told someone that phrase? Surely you have. I'll be right back. We even talk that way to our dog when we leave. Ranger, we'll be right back. And I, and I must say, sometimes I think it's a lie in his life. You know, I think about dog years and dog time. I will be right back. You know, four years, like a, four hours, like a year of his life takes us to come home. Parents tell their children, I'll be right back. We do that all the time at our home. We'll be right back. We're going for a walk. We'll be right back. We're going on a date. We'll be right back. Usually to our children, that means behave. We will be right back. In the movie, in the movies, when someone tells someone else they'll be right back, usually that's a cue to the listener, to the viewer, watch and see. Will they really be right back or not? The hero tells someone they've hidden away, I will be right back. One of two things usually happens in films and in stories. One, the hero comes back. He comes back for the people who told the wait for them. And it makes the movie wonderful. Or something tragic happens. Proves to be unfaithful. And doesn't come back. Or something happens to them. And they don't come back. The Lord Jesus Christ has told us He'll be right back. He's coming back. He will return. Is that a hope for you, Christian? Is that a good thing for you? Is that a sure thing for you? And I was thinking this week, and it's really no fault to my dad, but one of the, the, my first bad memories is my dad not coming right back. My dad telling me in the morning, I'll be back tonight to play golf. And, uh, and then he didn't come back that night. He had something to do for church. He was a pastor. He ended up having a really good thing to be at. Someone actually became a Christian the night he didn't come home on time. But I just remember thinking and feeling, you said you would be here. And Christian, I don't know about you, but you may be tempted to feel the Lord has said he'll be back. But is he coming back? Is he coming back? And what does it matter? I mean, do we, do we talk much about the return of the Lord? Why it matters for our lives now here on earth? Is it just a teaching and a doctrine that we have to put in our statement of faith? Or does it really matter to us? He will return. His return is sure. His return will be decisive. And His return makes us a sort of people. His return is sure. His return is 
is decisive or will be decisive and his return makes us a sort of people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, for your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come and open your word, we thank you for its revelation of who you are, what you are doing in the world, and we pray that it encourages and convicts us. That as we hear your word preached, we would recognize it for what it is, the word of God, not the word of man, which is at work in us who believe. May it have that power today to God. May it work in us. May it grow our desire for holiness and love and waiting and trusting for the return of the Lord. We pray that you would do those things now, even as we hear your word these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing about the Lord's return is that it is sure. It is sure. The return of Christ is the sure day which history is plunging toward. Luke is recording this to give Christians confidence that his return is sure. There are two things in Acts that help us believe that the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is a sure thing. That it's not an empty promise. The first surety is the witnesses on the earth. The eyewitnesses on the earth. The eyewitnesses pass down to us the assurance that Jesus will return. Jesus chose 12 apostles to be the authoritative witnesses of his life, death, and resurrection, and his ascension, and even his second coming, after he ascended into heaven. And we have then an angelic message which was given to them to teach them about what the apostles saw with their own eyes. The angel said to the apostles who were eyewitnesses, watching what happened, He will come to you in the same way you saw Him go into heaven. The manner of His return and the surety of His return are connected to the way the witnesses saw Him ascend. Just like you saw Him ascend, He will return. But how? Just like you saw Him ascend, He will return. The historical witness of Jesus is connected primarily to the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. Luke is going to great lengths here to show the apostles were eyewitnesses of everything from his baptism to when he ascended into heaven. So even just here in the beginning of Acts 1, verse 3 through 11, that Megan read for us, it says these things. Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. He appeared to them for 40 days, speaking to them after he raised from the dead. Verse 1-4 says he was staying with them. Verse 1-9 says as they were looking on at Jesus, as they were watching, we saw last week, while they were watching, it says three times they were looking and he was lifted up. While they were watching, two men stood beside them. And in the same vein of the eyewitness account The angels tell the apostles, in the same way you saw that, you will see Him return. The same way that you saw Him go into heaven, as part of your eyewitness testimony, you will see Him return to the earth. The eye, the surety of Jesus' return, 
among many reasons that we have, is attached to the eyewitness account of Jesus' ascension. This will be a real, present, embodied, historical fact. Just like His life, His death, His resurrection was witnessed. You will see Him like you saw Him. The return of Christ is the progression of the eyewitness account from His baptism to His life, to His death, to His resurrection, to His ascension. The next step will be the witness of His return. If Christ did not die from, if Christ did not raise from the dead, I would not expect Him to return from heaven. But if Christ has raised from the dead, and that is true, as the witnesses testify, I would expect Him to return. For those who saw Him raise, tell us that He will return. The New Testament was written in part as a defense of eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's not a claim about mythology or theory or spiritual things only, invisible things. It, it suggests that Jesus' death and resurrection are as sure events as your own birthday. I talked to a guy this week. He grew up in a church in California. He had never really heard that the Bible hadn't changed over time. He always just kind of thought that it was like a game of telephone. Even having grown up in the church, you know how the game of telephone works. Right? You, you whisper something in one person's ear, and they whisper in the next person's ear, and you keep going around, and you see what the message is at the end. You, know? you say something like, I like the Dallas Cowboys, and then some blasphemy ends up at the other end of the conversation. And the guy just thought, that's how the Bible was written. You know, some people wrote some things down, but then some other people picked it up and they kind of added their own thoughts. And it's just kind of like a game of telephone. So what did the original say? Well, we, I don't really know, you know. We don't know. This is helpful and this is nice and this is sweet and endearing, but the Bible doesn't talk about itself like that. The Bible won't let us think about the Bible like that and actually appreciate it. And actually give it any credibility. The authors of the Bible are claiming eyewitness historical accounts. So if it's been telephoned to us, so to speak, we shouldn't trust it. It doesn't make any sense. If the answer at the end of the telephone is, I saw this with my own eyes, well, you know, we know how telephone works. You know, the whole point of their witness and their testimony is that it is historically true. Not that it is just a, a message with some idealism in it, but that it happened in history. The apostles' testimonies, they witnessed what they profess and preach about Jesus. In Acts 2, the apostles began teaching. Jesus, uh, Peter says, This Jesus God raised from the dead, and of that we are witnesses. We saw it. Acts 3.15, Peter preaching in the temple says, And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To that we are witnesses. Acts 5, Peter testifying again after being told not to. He says, God exalted Jesus at the right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. The same is in Acts 10.39, Acts 10.41, and on and on. And then Paul picks up where the twelve witnesses were preaching. He and Paul is preaching in Pisidia, Acts 10. 30 to 31, God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witness to the people. 
I mean, just to keep going, 1 John chapter 1 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, we looked upon and we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. In 2 Peter, Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we had made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. Over and over and over, the apostolic testimony about Jesus Christ is witness, witness, saw it, touched it, heard it, it's real, it's real, a man rose, it's fact, we saw it, he rose from the dead, the Son of God. And the angel says to the eyewitnesses, as sure as you witnessed him in the cloud, he will return. You will see Him when He comes. You saw Him ascend. He will return. Just as surely. Revelation puts it this way. Behold, He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see Him. We have surety because the eyewitnesses of the earth, the apostles, have surety because of their eyewitness account And the second surety, the message from heaven. The return of Jesus Christ is connected to the historical eyewitness account. We are to expect it the same way we've seen everything else in his life. And we have this message from heaven. Acts 1.10 says, While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. I've already referred to them a few times this morning as Angels. I think it's because they follow a description of angels elsewhere through Scripture. Uh, men in robes is not an uncommon use of description of angelic figures appearing and speaking. When Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples were standing there perplexed. It says, Behold, two men stood in dazzling apparel. And the apostles were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The Gentile Cornelius sees a man in bright clothing who tells him the prayers have been heard. There were angels with a message from heaven, it seems. Men witness the ascension and the message about return comes from angels who are giving kind of heaven's commentary. Heaven's message is to man, he will return. Who is to say that Jesus is returning? It's not even the apostles saying this. It's angels telling the apostles He will return. Point being, this is not just the theological conclusion of the apostles. This is not their wish. It's not their dream. They didn't say one plus one equals He'll come back one day. They heard it from the angels. He is coming back. And time and time again, angels speak directly to the people of God, making timely announcements about the life of Christ. Angels directed the shepherds to go find Jesus in Bethlehem in the manger, a fulfillment of Scripture. Angels direct Joseph to flee from Bethlehem to take Jesus into Egypt to fulfill Scripture. Angels were present when Jesus was tempted in the desert. They were present with Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. They gave the disciples the message that he had risen from the dead, as we just heard. And now they stand, perhaps, like two cherubim before the cloud, saying, Jesus will return. We should believe the apostles saw and heard this. It's believed Jesus rose from the dead, and that the angel said he returned, 
Or just don't believe any of the eyewitness accounts. This is part of what they say, we saw, we heard. We saw, it's the same source. So if you want to say, oh man, these guys are making up stuff about angels, well then they're making up the whole thing. It's all silliness. Or it's all the most real thing between heaven and earth. I've come to love movies that deal with alternate universes and realms. Uh, we went to see Ant-Man Multiverse yesterday, something that we rarely do is go to the, any movies. I'm not going to give anything away. The trailer tells you, though, that the movie happens in the quantum realm, uh, the world that is deeply, infinitely down beneath our world. That's some great conversations with our kids on the way home. It's fascinating what our imaginations do and where they go and why they think the things they think. They kind of reveal our longings. They kind of tend to reveal what we really think about the world. That we're not just here. That what we see is not it. Why do we do that? Why do we, why do we dream like that? Why do we imagine? Oh, why do we tell stories like that? I think we do it because deep down we know there's something there. I was talking with one of my sons and just said, it's, we, we are, we're making these movies about these other realms. We're not the first ones to do this. Greek mythology. There's just story after story after story of, of unseen gods fighting and wrestling and loving and making allegiances and messing with earth and saving earth. And Why do we do that? Why do we imagine and enjoy imagining there are other realms? I think not because it's so far from reality. I think because we believe it's so close. An angelic message is a message, as, you, as it were, from one dimension to another. From the quantum realm, you could say. From heaven, which is invisible, to earth, which is visible. That's where this messenger comes from. Hey, it doesn't come from the president of Washington, D.C., it doesn't come from down the road. It came from heaven. Angels come from God. And to the angels, it was so sure, it was so sure that Jesus is coming back. They even asked the apostles, Why are you guys standing there looking up into heaven? Isn't this great? And this has to be one of the funniest questions in all of Scripture. Why are you guys standing there looking into heaven? Did you, did you see what just happened? We're kind of wondering where Jesus went. And the angels come to say with a message from heaven, He's coming back. He's coming back. It's heaven's word. We can be sure Christ will return. These are just two examples of the surety that we have that Christ will return coming out of the book of Acts. Is it sure to you? Is it in the bank is it a fact of history that simply hasn't happened yet to you? Or would you say that in some ways you're, you're, just want, you're really wandering? I mean, I, I get the promise. I heard about it. It's, it's interesting. I don't really know why it matters. And I honestly, I just, I don't know. I don't know. In the New Testament, it is a fact that is on its way. Jesus is the Son of God, crucified for sinners, raised and ascended, and He is coming back. Or none of it really matters. 
None of it is as true. None of it is as historical. We don't have the assurance from heaven about anything else. His return is sure. And his return, secondly, is decisive. This really is the main thing that the apostles needed to know about the ascension. That it was sure and that it was decisive. This applies to Christians especially. That it is decisive. This is something Luke records would have and should have been on their minds as they are sticking to the plan to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. If you look at the verses there in Acts 1, 10-11, it seems like Luke isn't offering really much meaning about the second coming. Well, what does it even mean? What is it for? He's pretty, pretty brief about it. Just states, an angel said he's coming back. But the first clue really comes in the immediate conversation from what Megan read in chapter 1, verse 1-11. through 11. The return of Jesus Christ is at the end of the conversation between Jesus and his apostles. It picks up in verse 6-11. through 11. See how the return of Jesus is at the end, the, the decisive end of the restoration of the kingdom of God on the earth. So you have the disciples there asking that question, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? It was a few weeks ago. Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus' answer is essentially no. Now's the time where you're going to receive the Spirit and be witnesses to the entire earth. No, now's the time that I'm going to ascend to the throne and sit at the right hand of the Father. And no, but I will come back. No, but I will be returning, the angel said. No, but the establishment of the kingdom is coming, is the implication in the conversation about the timing of the kingdom. After his resurrection, see in chapter 1-3, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. That's what he's teaching about. We talked a few weeks ago about how the kingdom of God is those three things. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So what does that mean now about the kingdom in Acts? Well, the people right now are, are being added to the kingdom from all nations, from all peoples, Jew and Gentile. That's who the people are. That's who God's people are. His kingdom on earth is God's people from all, all nations who put their faith in Jesus as king. And the place is kind of divided right now. Right now, Jesus is reigning from heaven, but His people are here on earth. And, and the rule is also kind of divided. Jesus is ruling and reigning from heaven, but His rule isn't extended over the whole earth. Yet, in affection, it's only over the people of God who are obeying Him. And that is spreading and spreading and spreading until the day comes when He returns. And the earth will be the place where God's people and God's place and God's rule are one. And the kingdom will be established here. The final answer for it's now the time you're going to restore the kingdom in their conversation is he will be back. He'll be back to do that. Heaven and earth are not entirely reconciled right now. Earth is a place filled with rebellion against God. Even creation itself, trees, water, rocks, the heavens, Paul says, are waiting to be renewed, having been corrupted from sin. So, it's a very packed question when the apostles ask, is now the time? No, you'll be my witnesses on the earth. No, I'm going to ascend to the throne and rule you from there, and I'll come back. 
I'm coming back to establish the kingdom all over the world. I think we can probably all agree, I think we probably all feel more than we even know sometimes in our subconscious that we think the world is coming to some end. It can't keep going like this. We're increasingly sure that some cataclysmic or apocalyptic event is on the horizon. Something's going to happen, right? There's a reason some of us have the impulse to populate Mars, for example. We're, we're a generation fascinated with how the world is going to end. We're, we're making and watching movies from 2012, or that, that's the title of a movie, or The Day After Tomorrow, or I Am Legend, which has a sequel coming out next year. Disney's Wally. And we could go on and on and on. We, we're intrigued, we're even entertained about the idea of zombie apocalypses and the end of the world. And whether it's a food crisis or an alien invasion or a nuclear holocaust or a climate event, we're just increasingly sure that something's coming. We're anxious. We can feel it. It's a doomsday on the horizon. But what if it's a different kind of end? What if it's a different kind of end than we're being entertained by? What if that's something were spiritual in its source and its intention? What if it wasn't primarily about the problems of the environment that we are in, but our spiritual condition? What if the end, think about it, what if the end is not so much tied to the environment that we are in being destroyed? but to the condition of our hearts and souls being the primary target of what happens in the end. As if we're fine, it's just the atmosphere that's a big problem. We're trying to hold on to our existence that way. When rather, the end is actually tied to what's going on in our hearts and minds and our relationship with God, who created the world and made the world and made us and owns us and has rights to all creation. All the options so popularly considered and depicted in culture, either in reality or in conspiracy theories or entertainment, we all meet our ends by an environmental, some, some external event to the identity of humanity. A climate event, invasion, destruction, food supply chains, nuclear war. It all brings about atmospheric catastrophes that threaten our existence. But it doesn't actually threaten us and what we've done wrong, and what we deserve, and who we are, and what's right and wrong. Those kinds of ideas about the end are accidental. Accidental events, ends to the world. Climate change would be a sad accident, a sad accidental way for the world to end. Nuclear war would be a very sad mistake between countries. World hunger would be a terrible mismanagement of resources. What a terrible way for the world to end. But there's a significant difference in the way the Bible speaks about the end. It is a reconciliation between God in heaven and man on earth. The end of the ages, the establishment of the kingdom of God on the earth, does not come accidentally. It's not an accident. God knows the end, God is bringing the world to its appropriate end in line with His wisdom and His holiness and His sovereignty. 
And at the center of all that God is doing in the world, in the center of God bringing the current world to its end, is the one man, His own Son, who came into the world and died for sinners in the world, who raised from the the dead, conquering death, to ascend to where He now rules from heaven. He is the linchpin of all history and the meaning in the earth. The bond, if you will, between creation and heaven and earth. He's the Son of God, yet He's a man. He is one with God, yet He was born of a woman. Having raised from the dead, conquering death here on earth, in the ground, in the dirt, He's now enthroned at the right hand of God. Now over heaven and earth. As Bonhoeffer put it, the whole world is relative to Christ, no matter whether it knows it or not. Even the end of the world as we know it. The last words in the Bible are a warning, an encouragement that God's kingdom is going to enter and entire conquer the earth. We are left with this taste in our mouths as we look to the end. So think about this. The book of Revelation was written to those churches coming out of and through the book of Acts. And Revelation was written to us today who are enduring hardships of persecution, hardships of being outcast, hardships of being thought that we are weird because we are waiting for a king to come from an invisible realm. Revelation ends with this taste on the mouth, the very taste that God put in the mouths of the apostles when they saw Jesus ascend. He's coming back. Keep that in your ears. Keep that taste on your mouth as you go out and do the mission of being witnesses all over the earth. And they want to kill you, and they want to mock you, and they want to make fun of you, and disbelieve you. Revelation says it like this, And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right. And let the holy still be holy. In other words, the world's going to be this way. The world's going to be filled with righteousness and holiness, wickedness and holiness. And what will be the decisive end of injustice and sorrow, and evil, and death. What will be the end of unreconciled rebellion against God in our sin? What will be the final reconciliation? Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I, Jesus, am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me. To repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. So that they may have the right to the tree of life. And that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. When Jesus returns, when He comes with His recompense in hand, there will be an inn in the city of God, the people of God, under the rule of God, and there will be an out. Our great crisis that the world is barreling towards 
It's not the climate, not food, not nuclear power. Although those things may bring great harm to us in God's providence. Our great crisis is the decisive event at the end of the earth as we know it when Jesus comes to reconcile the books between heaven and earth. It's the moral and spiritual reconciliation of all events. Johnny Cash sang it in a song like this. There's a man going around taking names. He decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. The hairs on your arm will stand up. At the terror in each sip and in each sup. Will you partake of that last offered cup or disappear into the potter's ground when the man comes around? There will not be one single sin, one single injustice, no word, no deed, no persecution to the church, no disobedience of men or women, no unfaithful spouses, no cheating bosses, no country genocide. There will be not a single thought and a single heart and mind that will not be taken to account when Jesus comes to settle. All that has been done, all that you have done, will come into account with God. From childhood. We're so worried about people getting away with things. I'll happily say this in front of my children. Half or more of the discussions I have with my children on a daily basis is helping them realize they're not getting away with it. I'm going to take care of it. I might forgive them. I might let it pass for now. I might discipline them. But I will take care of it. The Lord's return is God saying, I will take care of it. I will deal with it. The church in Acts, go be witnesses in the earth, boldly with the Holy Spirit, remembering Jesus will return. And that is the great decisive event at the end of the history of the world. His return is sure, His return is decisive. And it makes us a sort of people. His return makes us, that is, those who are believing in Jesus Christ, a sort of people. You might only know the return of Christ to be associated with homeless guys on the street holding up signs that say the end is near. Or you may look forward to the return of Christ because you associate it at the end with the end of pain, the end of struggle, the end of death and darkness. You associate it with just wanting everything to be over. But listen, Christians, we would do well to meditate further on the return of Christ and all that it means for Christians' daily life. The return of Christ, I heard this this week in a sermon. The return of Christ is mentioned once every 13 verses in the New Testament. In ratio, once every 13 verses. It's brought up over 300 times in the New Testament. Now I heard that and I thought, I would not have believed. I, 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 don't, I don't know if I would have said that. I would have guessed it was much fewer. It's, it's a common theme in the New Testament. And it doesn't lead us to want to check out of hardships and troubles that we are in. And neither does it lead us to begrudgingly serve God that we really want to just skip past and get to the end. 
The return of Christ doesn't lead us to escapism. It leads us to engagement. The return of Christ motivates a host of virtues for us. Endurance, generosity, gentleness, love, boldness, the avoidance of sin, the list goes on. But the return of Christ isn't just motivation for a few certain choices, but a few certain things in our lives. The return of Christ leads us to be a sort of people, a kind of people. Peter was one who was standing there watching Jesus ascend, who, who heard the angelic message that Christ would return. Later he wrote two churches, two letters to the churches, and was also behind the book of Mark. He was the first one to call Jesus to Christ. Peter fought for Jesus' life, cutting off a soldier's ear, wanting to defend and protect the kingdom. That ear, Jesus replaced, healing the man. For a time, Peter was too afraid to even admit that he knew Jesus. But after Jesus died, he ran to the grave to see Jesus' clothes neatly folded there. And he was there, Peter was there, when Jesus, being alive, appeared to the disciples, the apostles. He was there when Jesus showed his side and his hands and ate with them. He was there on the other side of the grave when Jesus rose from the dead and taught them about the coming, expanding, growing kingdom of God. Peter watched Jesus ascend into the cloud and he heard the angel say that Jesus would return. And then Peter received the power of the Holy Spirit and in Acts 2 began preaching, telling everyone everywhere that Jesus is the Son of God, that He'd been crucified for sins of the world. And that Him and in His name only there is forgiveness of sins, reconciliation between man and God. That Peter, this is what Peter said, who heard that Christ would return, Here's what he said to the church all over Asia who are experiencing persecution and hardship. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. People are going to mock you. People are going to call you stupid if you tell them you're waiting for Jesus to return. You're going to sound like you're reading kids' books. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is God taking His time? Because He loves saving people. He wants to save more. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it, on it, will be exposed. Listen to what Peter says next. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. Because of which, because of the haste the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we we are waiting for new heavens and new earth, in which 
Righteousness dwells. Righteousness dwells there. Holiness is there. Only goodness is there. God's character and nature is perfectly there. Everything else has been dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Your whole life, if you are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that He died for your sins, that He rose from the grave, that He ascended to heaven, and that He is returning as a historical, decisive fact. Your whole life ought to be a sort of life with that fact in mind. You are waiting and hastening the day that is coming when God will dissolve the world and save His people. Your marriage ought to be a sort of marriage. Your family ought to be a sort of family. Your work ethic ought to be a sort of work ethic. Your financial plan ought to be a sort of financial plan. Your attitude a sort of attitude. Your mouth a sort of words. The way you use your Sundays, a sort of Sunday. Your gathering and discipleship, a sort of fellowship. You ought to be a holy sort of people, different from the earth, weird to the earth, strange, standing out, because you know Jesus is coming. And the second coming of Jesus should not just mark some decisions in your life or some things that you do, it should be the sort of life that we live. Jesus returning should be part of the rubric for which you plan your, your whole life and, and you date and you marry and you raise children and, and you go to work and you do anything. It ought to be run through the fact that one day Jesus is coming and so what? Because we of all people in the world know the end that the world is coming to. The sure, decisive end. The earth and the works that are done in it are going to be exposed. It's coming. That day is coming. Well, the earth and the works in it are going to be exposed. And right now, there are reports of revival occurring in Asbury College in Wilmore, Kentucky. And I hope and I agree with trusted voices that I've heard that this is a good, genuine work of the Lord. I'm happy to hear it and love it. And I hope that it continues to be good. It's grown in attention. Fox News, NBC, many more reported on in the last few days. I don't know what you think about it, but I'm glad for it. I love it. I think it's great. And we hold this final test for it. What sort of people does it make? Holy? Godly? Jonathan Edwards was a pastor during a great awakening in the early 1740s in America. He wrote a great deal on dealing with true works of the Lord from false. Trying to discern. I mean, he has written long, long sentences and paragraphs on uh, how to discern true works of the Lord from false. But he remarked at one point very simply, looking at his generation of revival, a true saint greatly delights in holiness. A true saint greatly delights in holiness. A true saint looks to the end when Jesus is returning and says, I know that when He comes, surely and decisively, that everything that is not good and holy will dissolve and burn and be judged. And Jesus' kingdom will be established on the earth fully. And you know what's going to dwell there? You know what kind of kingdom that will be? Righteous. 
No more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more war, no more enemies, no more doubt. Righteousness and faith and goodness dwelling with God all over the earth. That's what's coming. And so I live like that. I live like I'm going to be. I live like I am. With Christ in your mind and His return, I want to be holy. I know that everything else in my life and in the world will be exposed. Everything else is going to be dissolved. It's not righteous. One day we will be free of this world, free of pain, free of sickness and evil and trouble and darkness. So I free myself from it now. If that is what we long for then, it's what we long for now. It's what we want now. Otherwise, if we don't long for it now, if we don't want to be holy and live holy lives and have our church be holy, what do you mean by wanting to go to heaven? What do you mean by I want to be in the kingdom that Jesus is going to establish on the earth? Because the whole glory, the whole joy of it is that righteousness dwells there. 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is going away, but Christ is coming and you are in Christ. So what sort of people ought you to be? And this is what the, this is what the second coming meant to the church in the book of Acts. They're going to come cut you guys' heads off. They're going to come ransack your houses. They're going to come put you in prison. They're going to mock you as silly. They're going to make fun of the fact that you only have one God. They're going to make fun of the fact that your God died on the cross and that he's gone. What are you guys going to do? What matters to you? Eagerness for the second coming of Jesus is not, does not produce escapism. It produces a desire for holiness. Wanting to be like the place and the person that we are going to who is coming for us to reconcile the world. So, it's our motivation for getting into discipleship. Christ is coming. I need to be discipled. I want help seeing the sin in my life. I pray for the kingdom to come and I pray for God to show me, like Psalm 139, show me the ways, the grievous ways in my heart. I want to know the sin. I don't want to hide the sin in my heart. I don't want to be found unholy. I don't want to be found connected to a world that's dissolving. God, show me the sin in my life. You open your Bible to hear from God's Word, to be sure, be encouraged about His coming and learn about His coming and appreciate and long for His coming. You confess your sin when you do what's wrong and you seek reconciliation with others because when Jesus returns, you want to be found like He treated others, like He died on the cross even for His enemies. You read books, you go to building blocks, you meet for one-on-one discipleship, you join a life group, you pursue holiness. Preaching on the second coming, Spurgeon put it like this. Therefore, set loose all things below the moon and clutch as with the grasp of a dying man the things immortal and eternal which your God has revealed to you. Such conduct will separate you from your fellow men as there is down deep in your heart an object difference from theirs. 
And as you set a different estimate on all things, your conduct will be wide apart from theirs, being swayed by different motives. Your life will diverge from theirs and they will misunderstand you. And while trying to find motives for you as they do not know the true motive, they will impute ill motives to you. So it must be. You must come out from among them. Be separate and touch not the unclean thing. And the fact that all these things are to be dissolved should make it easy for you to do so. Nay, he says, natural for you to do so. It's coming ashore. It will be decisive. You ought to be a holy sort of people waiting for His coming. Let's pray. Father, we come to You and we pray. Thanks for Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. Thanks for the sure hope that He will return. Father, we thank You for the confidence that Christ has ascended, witnesses of His life, death, resurrection, and ascension, giving us surety that He will come again. We thank You for the confirmation from heaven that He will come again. Father, we pray that You would bear on our souls by Your Spirit and Your Word the weight of of His return. And give us confidence to continue to walk in faith, for motivation to walk in holiness as we trust. Everything else will be dissolved away. Help us to look forward to a place of dwelling in righteousness and by it prepare our hearts and live now in righteousness. Thank you for your grace to save us from our sin. Thank you for your spirit to sanctify us from our sin. Help us this week to walk in holiness in our lives. We look for, Father, we long, we wait for your return of your Son to the earth so that we in this place will be totally, finally redeemed, justified, free. And as we wait and look forward, Father, help us be holy, as we will be when He comes. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.